Amen. You can have a seat. <clears throat> it's good to see everybody. Like I said earlier, I'm glad that uh, that you're here this morning. We're going to to finish up our series uh, on the advent or the coming of Jesus, the incarnation of Jesus, the fact that God has come to us in the flesh. Uh, we've been looking. I don't know if you've picked up on. I know that we've mentioned it a couple of different times. Uh, but we've been looking at the Gospels, particularly all four Gospels. What do they say about Jesus coming in the flesh, about God coming in the flesh in Jesus? And so we looked at Matthew and Luke, who give a birth narrative, and they spend some time talking about how Jesus came in the flesh and who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do. And then we looked last week at one theme that comes largely from John, it's emphasized in all the Gospels, but largely from John, and that is that he's the light of the world. And then this week we're going to wrap up with looking at a theme that is throughout the book of Mark. And so we've been studying this theme of the incarnation of the coming of God in Jesus, in the flesh, through the Gospels. And we've been particularly looking at the titles that each Gospel writer gives to Jesus. And so Matthew and Luke emphasize that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, they all talk about it. Matthew and Luke really emphasize it. The Messiah was the anointed one set apart for a specific assignment. What was that specific assignment? But to proclaim liberation or liberty to the captives, good news to the poor, and to come near to the brokenhearted. And then we looked at Jesus is the son of David, the promised king. When we talked about that, we said that there was an expectation of a king that would come to liberate the, the people, I Israel or the Jews, they would liberate them and bring healing. And Jesus is the one that's greater than David. He brings something greater, greater liberation than just liberation from Rome, but liberation from sin and death. He brings healing in his wings. We saw, saw that Jesus is the son of Abraham, the long-awaited promised son of blessing, who is going to be the hope of the nations. Jesus is that, Matthew and Luke emphasize and then Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us to rescue us from certain destruction. We saw that. And then, like I said, Jesus is the light of the world. So the question that comes up in all of this as, as we migrate through this God in the flesh, in Jesus, and all these different titles and all the implications of what those titles mean, the question comes up, can Jesus really do all of those things? Is he sufficient for the task? Can he really liberate us? from sin and death? Can he really heal us soul-deep healing? Can he really come and be the hope of the nations? Is he really the opposite of all that is dark? Is he really light? And can he really dispel all the darkness as we just sang about? That's the question that arises as we study through these titles and through the, the, the gospel writers, what they say about Jesus. And this is the question that Mark begins to answer. And this is his unique contribution to the Gospels, to, to the Synoptic Gospels. He writes, and he asks that question and answers it sufficiently through the whole book. And so we're going to look at Mark chapter 1, verses 14 to 15 this morning. And particularly, we're going to summarize Mark, but we're going to use that as our springboard. And what we're going to see this morning is, is Mark's answer is that Jesus is king with all power. That he is truly the infinite king with all power at all times over all things. And if that is true, we must submit to him. That's going to be his challenge. That's going to be Jesus' invitation that is in this text this morning. 
And the good news of submission that Jesus offers is that it's liberation, not crushing. He is actually going to be our hope, the hope of all things. He is our only hope. And so that's what we're going to see this morning. The king with all power, the king we must submit to, and the king who is our only hope. So let's read the text. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 to 15. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is a profound statement that Jesus is making here, a proclamation here, and that Mark is recording for us. To give you just a little context about Mark, the gospel of Mark, and and Mark himself, and what he's writing, and the audience he's writing to, Mark is the, the disciple that we're maybe familiar with from the book of Acts that uh, followed along, tagged along with Paul and Barnabas. He's the cousin of Barnabas, and as he's tagging along with them, he's invited to go on their missionary journeys, and at some point he bails out, and he returns home, and it really ticks off Paul. And Paul and Barnabas get into a disagreement on whether they should invite Mark to go with them on their next missionary journey. Paul says no, he, he's, he's not reliable. And then Mark, uh, Barnabas says, no, no, he is, he, he'll come through, we, we can trust him. And, and so they divide, they go separate ways. Paul one way, Barnabas another, taking Mark with him. Church history records that later, and we see it in the text, it, it's, it's in, in numerous texts, uh, Paul begins to call for Mark to come to him at the end of his life in ministry, and he says he's useful for ministry. So there's redemption in Mark's life. But church history records that Mark and Peter, the Apostle Peter, end up together in Rome. And Mark becomes the disciple of Peter. In fact, he becomes the scribe of Peter. He's writing for Peter in a number of different places. And that's where Mark begins to write the Gospel of Mark. Probably relying largely on Peter, who walked with Jesus. Now, they're writing at a specific time in Rome to the believers at Rome. Uh, I say they. Mark is writing to a specific time, a specific group of believers in Rome, the church at Rome, that were under the rule of Nero. If you know your history, you know that Nero was not necessarily a compassionate person. He was actually uh, a, a tyrannical ruler. He oppressed his own people, not just Christians, but he oppressed his own people. He was known for taking from his people, from crushing them, from oppressing them. He was not a good ruler. And he realized he was losing some steam and losing some credibility with the people. And so one of the things that church history indicates is that in order to garner the praise of the people again or have the people come back to him and look to him to be their hero, he actually set part of Rome on fire. And what happened was 11 to 14 districts of Rome burned, and what he thought would happen was the people would turn to him and say, Nero, you're the hero, come and rescue us and rebuild the, peop- the, rebuild the, the city. But in fact, they turned on him, they began to realize, and rumors began to spread, they think Nero set the fires, and Nero had to find a scapegoat. And so what did he do? He found this small little group that was believed to be a cult. In fact, they were called the man-haters. They were known as Christians. And he said, they did it. They're the ones that, that set Rome on fire. They're the ones that we should 
to hold accountable to this. In fact, Nero began to oppress them and drag them from their homes. He dragged Christians. He clothed them in, in, lion, uh, in, uh, in, in animal skins and threw them to the lions in the Colosseum. He would actually take them and decapitate their heads and put them on spikes and light them on fire to illuminate the way into Rome. This was Nero, and this was his attitude to his own people, but also specifically to Christians. And this is the context in which Mark writes the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That gives you some context for what we're about to look at and what Mark is going to communicate. Mark chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then we get down to verse uh, 15, when Jesus proclaims, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. Two times we see this word gospel, and, and it means something. It means good news, not advice. It means good news of historic reality that changes your condition, that ought to change your condition. Mark is proclaiming that from the very outset in verse 1, and Jesus echoes, he records Jesus saying this in, verses, uh, in verse 15. So what is Mark announcing, and what is Jesus proclaiming by saying these things? That the kingdom of God is at hand, that this is good news for us to celebrate. What he's saying is, there's a new king in town, and it's not Nero. That this king that has come, Jesus, is not like your earthly kings. He's not like any other king you've ever experienced. In fact, he is God himself come in the flesh to rescue you. Imagine if you are the believers at Rome and you heard that message. What would you think? What would you feel? Immediate joy. And that's what Mark is trying to communicate. He's trying to communicate who Jesus is, and he does not give us a birth narrative. He jumps straight into the earthly ministry of Jesus. He jumps straight into what Jesus came to do. And what is Jesus' first words here? He proclaims, the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. He doesn't just come and say, hey guys, what's up? How are you? He says, the kingdom of God is is at hand. What is the kingdom? It, it means the rule and the reign of God. Couple that with at hand, it means the rule and reign of God is in your midst, is staring you in the face. If you have a kingdom, you have to have a king. The king has come. I am the long-awaited king you have been looking for. I am here. I am in your midst. I am in your presence. The rule and reign of God is in the flesh right here, staring you in the eyes. Now, imagine some of the skepticism that would then arise. Wait, you're saying you're God? You're saying you have all authority? You're saying you have all power? And that's why Mark, over the next eight chapters, begins to give us reminder after reminder after reminder that Jesus is the one with all power and all authority. Why? Because he is God himself. So let's look at a few places where Mark shows us, and a few ways that Mark shows us that Jesus has power and authority over all things. So one that we kind of glance over and we don't think much about is when he calls the disciples. In Mark chapter 1, verse 16 to 20, we see that Jesus has authority over men. 
He speaks and they drop their nets. He speaks and they follow. This is maybe small and insignificant, but early what Mark is trying to show us is that Jesus has authority. When he speaks, people listen. When he acts, things happen. And then what we see is that he has authority over God's word. In Mark chapter 1, verse 21 and 20 to 23, it says, And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. How did the scribes teach? They opened up and they read. They simply regurgitated what was right in front of them. Jesus did not teach that way. Jesus taught with authority. Certainly it has to do with the, the, the power, the boldness, the proclamation of how he's teaching. But it's also because he reinterpreted their understanding of the scriptures. Where do we see that? We see an example of that in Matthew chapter 5 when he says, You have heard that it was said, but I tell you. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you, anyone who's even committed lust in his heart. He, he takes it from the big, the, the, the broad, and he narrows it down, and he zeroes in on the heart. He is reinterpreting the scriptures, and Mark is showing us that he has authority over God's word. He also has authority over the laws of men. In Mark chapter 2, in Mark chapter uh, in, in 18, and then later in 23, 27, he has authority over fasting. He reinterprets that, their principles of fasting. Later in the Sabbath, he says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I have authority over the Sabbath. Y- you think that it earns you this. I am the Sabbath. I am the rest that has come to rescue you. And so he shows us again and again, and these are just the high points, by the way, th- that we see throughout Mark. Mark repeatedly, I mean, these are, we're just hitting the the peaks here, but over and over again, what we see is that no one has authority over this thing, but then Jesus came. No one has authority over men, but then Jesus came. No one has authority over God's word, but then Jesus came. No one has authority over the laws of man, but then Jesus came. Repeatedly, Mark is reminding us of this. One of my favorite stories is Mark chapter 4, verse 35. You're familiar with the story where the disciples are on the boat. They're out on the Sea of Galilee. It's known for its storms spontaneously. The winds, the gusts would come in. Storms would arise. This massive storm comes in. White caps are everywhere. The boat is threatening to be sunk and and overturned. And the disciples are, are literally freaking out. And they run in. And where is Jesus? Asleep. But Mark, as a beautiful writer that he is, he adds something. He's asleep on the steersman's cushion he's showing us the infinitude he's about to show that the power of jesus but he also shows us the humanity of jesus that jesus took a cushion and put it under his head he is asleep in the boat not alarmed by the storm where all the disciples are alarmed they come into him jesus don't you care about us we're gonna die jesus wakes up throws the cushion down snaps his finger the storm stops immediately they say who is this And they say, and they ask, and they recognize, no one has authority over nature except God. And then Jesus came. And then we see that he has power over demons. Another story we're probably familiar with, there's multiple accounts of this, but Mark chapter 5, verse 1 to 20 records one particular story where there is a demon-possessed man that has 
been possessed for numerous years. There's no one that can bind him. No one can do anything for him. In fact, they just, uh, they've just resolved, let's put some chains on him, but he keeps breaking those. Let's kick him out of town. Let's put him down by the ocean, by the sea, and let's put him down by the caves. No one can do anything for him. And then Jesus comes. No one can heal him. And then Jesus comes. And what does Jesus do? He comes to him, and what's amazing, again, the detail that's recorded in Mark, it says that there's a legion of demons inside of this man, and they ask, they're fearful of Jesus, and they ask permission to leave the man and to go into the, to the pigs and jump off a cliff. And Jesus grants it. You don't ask a person for permission unless you're in ultimate authority. Even the demons recognize his authority. And what they see is this man, after the fact, healed and in his right mind, not in chains, not ranting and raving and going crazy. Instead, he's healed in his right mind, and there's Jesus right by his side. No one has power over demons except God. And then Jesus came. And then we see that he has authority over sickness. Another example, another story we're probably familiar with, a woman who has a discharge of blood, it says in the text, and she's bled for 12 years, 12 years of sickness, 12 years no one could heal her, 12 years of doctors saying, we don't know what it is and we can't do anything for you, 12 years of misery and pain. In fact, additionally, 12 years of having to declare she would have had to done, walking up and down the street, declaring, I am unclean, I am unclean, don't come near me. 12 years of not being allowed into worship gatherings like this, allowed into the temple. They, 12 years of being ostracized and, and cast off. No one could do anything for her. And then Jesus came. And Jesus heals her. Jesus cleanses her. Jesus gives her soul-deep cleansing. No one can heal her or help her. Then Jesus comes. And then Mark shows us that Jesus has not only power over all these things, he has power over death. Power over death. In Mark chapter 5, verse 35, there's the ruler of the synagogue, and his uh, daughter is sick, and he comes to Jesus, and he wants Jesus to come and to heal her. He knows about Jesus' healing. In fact, Mark records repeatedly all the town was gathering and bringing the sick to Jesus. And, and here's another man coming and he wants Jesus to come to his house and to heal his daughter but in the midst of that his daughter passes away and his servants come and they tell him they said it's too late she's dead and Jesus says no 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 she's just asleep and what he shows us is that death is just like being asleep to him he can snap his finger and she can come to life he has a power and authority over even death no one can defeat death except for God. And then Jesus comes. Mark repeatedly shows us that he has power over uh, and authority over all things at all times in all places. He is the king with absolute ultimate power over all things. And so I ask you and I, th I think to myself, is there anything in my life that I think is beyond Jesus' ability to heal? Anything beyond Jesus' ability to restore? Anything beyond Jesus' ability to reconcile? Mark reminds us, no, there's not. There is nothing that I will face that he cannot conquer, that he cannot rescue from, that he cannot restore. There is nothing that he cannot 
have power over, does not have power over. There is nothing impossible to him. So Mark is clearly communicating by all of this, he's clearly communicating that Jesus is king who has power over all things. Again, remember the audience. What do you think that communicated to those believers at Rome, oppressed by Nero, being thrown to the lions, being crushed, being having their heads cut off? What do you think that said to them? It certainly said there's a new king in town and he's greater than Nero. He has more power than Nero. He's not like any other earthly king. He is not like all the kings that you've seen before. He is radically and totally other. He is God. And that is one of the messages that Mark is trying to communicate. That Jesus is God with all power, with all authority. But he's also trying to communicate how he uses that power and what he does with that power. The first thing that Jesus says is that the kingdom of God is at hand. And Mark is showing us the infinite power of King Jesus over all things in order to communicate. There's a specific purpose for it in order to communicate he has power over sin. If he has power over these earthly things that we think are absolutely impossible, it's impossible for a person to say to a storm, stop, cease. It's impossible for a person to say to death, no more, get up, you're sleepy. It's impossible for anyone to say to a woman sick for 12 years, you're clean, you're whole, you're healed. It's impossible. If, if Jesus can say to all of those things, you're healed, all of those things, it's, it's for it's over, it, it's finished, then he has power to say to sin, you're forgiven. What is sin to him if he has power over all of these things? This is one of the messages, one of the primary messages Mark is trying to communicate, and there's no more better place than it's recorded than in Mark chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. And what we see is that Jesus has of power over all earthly things, and this is intended to communicate something strongly to us. And in this story, there's a, uh, a man who's a, been a paralytic from birth, and there's four other friends that carry him, like everyone else was doing, to Jesus. Everyone's coming to Jesus. And there were so many gathered around the house that they couldn't get into the house. They took the paralyzed man up onto the house. They cut a hole for the man. They lifted part of the roof back, and they lowered the man down to Jesus. And what does it say in the text? But that Jesus recognized in verse 5, he says, when he saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. This immediately upsets the scribes and the Pharisees because there's no one who has power over sin except God. And then Jesus came. And what they are saying, and what Mark uses their own words against, and Jesus uses their own words against, is, oh, what's easier, he asked? Is it for me to say that a person, her person's sins are forgiven? Or is it easier for me to say to a paralyzed man to get up and to walk? We miss this, but there's a key word in, that, in those verses there, and the word is say. It's easy for me to say, your sins are forgiven. It's easy for me to look at Rick and say, Rick, your sins are forgiven. Why? Because you can't prove whether I have the power or the authority to do that. You don't know if his sins are forgiven. Because it's internal. 
It's a radically other thing for me to say to a paralyzed person, get up and do some victory laps around this building. I can't say that. Why? Because you can quickly verify if I have the authority or the power to do it. Because if they don't get up, I don't have the power to do that. And Jesus says that very thing to this audience here. He says, okay, so that you believe I have the power over sin, something you can't see, I'll tell you, I'll show you, I'll display for you the impossible thing of healing a paralyzed man. Get up, take your mat, and run. And he does it. And that verifies in that moment that Jesus is far more than an earthly king. He's far more than any king we've ever experienced. He's far more than any king that his, uh, Mark's audience would have understood. He is the king of kings. He is God himself. And if he has power over these things, it's an argument from the lesser to the greater. If he has power over these lesser things, paralysis, uh, uh, death, demons, if he has power over those things, then what's sin to him? He can conquer sin and death and Satan and reconciliation to God. He is sufficient for the task. And that's what Mark is trying to communicate to us. That's one of the primary messages that he is communicating over and over again. He has power over paralysis, and this demonstrates his power over sin. And if he has power over sin, then he is absolutely the infinite Lord of hosts, the King of kings, God himself. That is one of the primary messages Mark is building. And he's, he's, like, a, he's like a good lawyer. He's building a case. He's building a point after point. And again, we only hit the high points. There are repeated stories of him healing demons, repeated stories of him healing sickness, repeated stories of him controlling nature, repeatedly over and over again for eight chapters. And it raises the question. And it's, it points us to something. And it leads to a point Mark is making, a second major point of Mark. If he is king, if he has ultimate authority over all things, then he has authority over your life. And you must submit to him. I must submit to him. If he is truly the king of all kings, then we must give him rightful honor, rightful worship. We must bend the knee and bow the head and worship him as the true king that he truly is. We don't have another choice. As Tim Keller famously said, we either have to crown him or kill him. We can't stand in the middle. We either have to crown him. He's either truly king and God of the universe, and he has power over all things, which includes me, which includes my life, which includes my money, which includes my finances, includes my wife, includes my relationships, includes my sexuality, includes everything I do, includes my pride, includes everything. He's either the king with all power over all those things, or he is not. And I don't get to pick and choose which things he's king over. And Mark is building this case. He has ultimate authority, ultimate power over all things. And if that is true, you and I must submit to him and give him his rightful worship and rightful honor. Mark announces and Jesus proclaims that there's a new king in town. And it's not Nero and it's not you. And if there's a new king then there are new rules. There are new expectations. There are new standards of living. 
that we must abide by. And we don't get a choice. Actually, the only choice we get is whether we're going to abide by those or not. We don't get to pick and choose. And this is something we all understand. We all understand. We're seeing it happen right now. If you're a college football fan or an NFL fan, you watch the coaching carousel. We talk about it every year. The coaching carousel, what, does it, what happens when one team fires a coach, they hire a new coach, and when that new coach comes in, what does that new coach do? He cleans house. That's a phrase we t- sometimes use, right? He, he gets rid of other coaching staff. At the University of Miami, uh, their, their defensive coordinator had resigned. He, he took a position at Temple. Mark Rick, the head coach, decides he's going to retire. Miami goes after that defensive corner they just lost. They hire him back from Temple two weeks later. And the first decision he makes in less than 24 hours is he fires the entire offensive staff. Why? Because he is the coach. He has the authority to make that decision. We have been in situations like this with employers. I've been in this situation where we have a new boss or a new employer come in And there's a dilemma because that new employer has the opportunity to keep me on staff or to to fire me, to release me from my position. It's his prerogative. And I have a choice. We learn it in Romans. I taught it to my staff for years. We talk about it over and over again. I have a choice. I either have to submit to that new employer, that new boss, or I have to remove myself. I don't get to stand in the middle and cause problems as a follower of Christ. And so... This is something Mark is teaching us. If Jesus is king, we must submit to him. We must obey him. Whoa, obey? That's not a word we like. Submit? That's not a word we like. Well, Jesus himself says it. In Mark chapter 1, verse 15, he says, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God, the king has come, is staring you in the face. Repent. Repent, that's also not a word we like. We live in an anti-authority age. We don't like authority. You want to test it? How do you respond when your boss tells you to do something? You, sh- you say, sure, I'll do it. But inside, many of us think, I don't want to do that. Because we don't like authority. How do you respond when you get pulled over for a ticket? I was doing 90 and 25. I don't understand what the big deal is. We still get angry at the police officer doing his job. Why? Because we don't like authority. We live in an anti-authority age, but it's not new. It's remnants of the fall. It's remnants of Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, we talk about it all the time. We lifted our fist to God, and we said, I make a better king. I make a better ruler. I know what's best for my life. I make a better self-rule, self-sovereign. I understand what I like. Look, I like that thing. Oh, you don't like that? Well, I don't care. I like that thing. That's what we're saying to God. Genesis chapter 3, Paul says in Romans 5 that we have all inherited remnants of that rebellion. That we too are all inclined towards rebellion to God. And the little inklings that we have of our anti-authority nature that we have in life towards people, towards authority, towards bosses, towards police officers, that little inkling is a remnant of the larger issue of our life, which is our heart. And our heart is bent towards rebellion against an infinite king, God. But Jesus, 
is the infinite king, and he calls us to submit to him. He calls us to return to him, to submit to him, to submit our self-rule to his rule, to give up our self-authority and submit to his authority, to dethrone ourselves and enthrone him. Again, these words are not something that we like to talk about, but these are the words that Jesus uses. Repent means to turn from a way of living And it can mean to submit. So what we're saying is, this is the way I think is best. This is the way that I want to live my life. I don't care what anybody else says. I don't care what God says. I don't care. This is the way. What Jesus says is, repent. You have rebelled against an infinite holy God. Bend your will to him. Submit to him. This is what Mark teaches us over and over again throughout the book of Jesus. And I imagine, if you're anything like me, this is a difficult thing to hear. Because we love the idea. It's a cute idea that Jesus came to save us. But we do not like the idea that he's a king who gets to point his finger in our lives and say, give it up. Stop. Return. Repent. Submit. Stop doing that. We don't like the idea that Jesus might ask us to do something. In fact, this is the next question that arises when we hear that Jesus is king, is what's he going to ask me to give up? So I, when I was in college, the major question that came up about following Jesus was, where is he going to ask me to go? Like, is he going to ask me to move to Africa? That was the question that we asked as college students. Like That was a fear factor of where we were going to have to go or move or give up. And then David Platt wrote Radical, and now everybody wants to move to Africa or wherever else, right? So that's not the question now. The question that I dealt with working with college students for so many years at the University of Mobile was, who am I going to have to give up? Am I going to have to give up that relationship? Am I going to have to give up that person? Am I going to have to leave that relationship? And I imagine that many of us face some of the same fears and anxieties. What am I going to have to give up? I know plenty of men, plenty of women that are are successful in in business, and, and they're wrestling with Jesus' call on their life, and it may be for them to stay in that position, stay in that business, and obey Him and glorify Him in that position, but it also may be that He's calling them out of that to some other form of ministry in life. And there's a tension there. Because it means giving up our comfortable lives. I wrestled with that same thing, leaving the university. I was in a position uh, as an executive leader. I pursued education, got my Ph.D. In, 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 in Christian education, higher education leadership, and spiritual formation. I thought my trajectory was, was headed in that dire- direction, was, was further education, further leadership in higher ed. And then he begins to nudge and begins to call and begins to shape and reshape my desires And he says, no, that's not the way I want you to go right now. I want you to go this way. And here I am. And that was a very difficult decision. In the academic world, it's like like drugs to be called doctor, right? It's like drugs to them to be called and recognized for the the recognition, for the positions, for the the attainments. There's this title thing, and and everyone begins to to feed on that. And, And then position, and all these things, and finances, all this stuff. And I'm like, you want me to do what? That's one case. And we all wrestle with that. And what 
Mark is reminding and what Jesus is calling us to is that the king has come. Repent. It means to submit your will, your plans, your desires, your goals, your whatever to the true king. And that's terrifying, if we're honest. Because we don't know what he's going to do with that. Or we don't know what he's going to ask us to do. And that leads us to the last point, which is the king who is our only hope. Because he doesn't ask us to do things or to give things up because he needs those things. He's not asking you to give up your idol because he needs it or wants it. He's asking you to give it up because he wants something greater. He wants your heart. He's not asking you to sacrifice whatever that thing is that you so desire and so worship, if it's approval or if it's, it's pride or if it's a relationship or if it's a place or if it's whatever it is. He's not asking you to give those things up because he needs it. He's asking you to give it up because he wants your heart and my heart. Because whatever that thing is that we don't think we can part with, or that thing which is our will and our desire and our kingdom, whatever that thing is we don't think we can give up, it's revealing our hearts to us. That we worship that thing more than we worship God. More than we worship Jesus. And there are a number of cases, and I know a number of people in this room, that have had to wrestle with these same things, and it's all very various ways, and in a number of different ways. And the question comes up, what's he going to ask me to do? Imagine the audience that Mark is writing to under the rule of Nero. They've been thrown to the lions. They've had their heads cut off. They've been put on stakes. They've been used as lights into the, into the city of, of Rome. And now they hear there's a new king in town. He has all power and all authority. Great news! But just as soon as that joy enters in, anxiety enters in because they're now questioning Wait a second, if he has more power than Nero, how's he going to use that power? What's he going to do with that power? How's he going to ask me to follow him? What's he going to do in, in terms of authority? How, what's the relationship going to be like? Is he going to be just another Nero who crushes us? Is he going to be just another Nero who oppresses us? Is he going to be just another Nero that takes our stuff? No. Jesus answers that question for us in this very verse. He says, the kingdom of God, the rule of God, the king has come. It is at hand, staring you in the face. Repent, submit to him, and believe the good news of the gospel. What's he saying in this moment? We ask the question, is is he going to be like Nero? Is he going to pierce us? Is he going to crush us? Is he going to oppress us? Is he going to discard us? Jesus answers, no. I'm going to be pierced on your behalf. I'm going to be crushed for you. I'm going to be discarded on your behalf. Because I'm not like your kings. I'm not like you. I'm not like any other king that you've ever experienced. I'm the infinite king, the Lord of hosts, God, and I have come in the flesh to redeem, to rescue, and to reconcile you. That is amazing news. And that is what Mark leads us to. Mark leads us to understand that all eight of these chapters that emphasize this infinite great king shows us that he has infinite power that we must submit to. But then the last half of the book of Mark, he doesn't leverage that power against us. He leverages that power for us. He 
He uses all this power, leverages all of this power, not to crush us, but to be crushed on our behalf, to set us free, to liberate us. He calls us to lay down our idols, and it's not crushing, it's liberating. He calls us to to follow His commands, but they're not burdensome, they're liberating. This is exactly what 1 John 5 talks about. That, that obedience to God, that we are called, love for God looks like obedience. It, it means o- obeying Him, but His commands are not burdensome. Matthew chapter 11, verse 30, he, Jesus tells us to take His yoke on Him. Yoke means rule. It, it's something you put on an ox in the fields. And He says, my yoke is not burdensome. It's, it's light. It's good. In fact, it's soul-deep refreshing. It's liberating and pleasant. And that's what we learn in Mark, in the book of Mark, over and over again, that Jesus tells us that he has come to rescue us and to restore us. I love what John Newton says, similar in, in vain here, of what we're talking about. He has a sovereign right to do with us as he pleases. God has a sovereign right to do with us as he pleases. And if we consider what we are, Surely we shall confess we have no reason to complain. And to those who seek him, his sovereignty is exercised in a way of grace. His rule is not burdensome or crushing. His call for us to lay down our lives or to lay down our idols is not crushing, it's liberating. It's good news. And what John Newton finishes, he says, All shall work together for good. Everything is needful that he sends. Nothing can be needful that he withholds. His calling us to lay down whatever we may have to lay down, it it may be costly. It may hurt. It, It may not be pleasant. But it's not burdensome. Because it's always for his glory and our good. Whatever he allows, John Newton says, Whatever, everything is needful that he sends, and nothing can be needful that he withholds. And this is what Mark is reminding us. I love the, the Chronicles of Narnia, the Lion of the Witch in the Wardrobe, and C.S. Lewis has multiple characters there. Aslan, the great lion, the king. He says, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. And Susan says, ooh, I'd like to, I, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. And Mr. Beaver says, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. The king that we serve does not leverage his power like Nero to crush. Instead, he leveraged his power for us, and he was crushed on our behalf. He's a good, benevolent, loving king, and calling us to submission to him is the best possible life that we could ever live, living according to our way is crushing. But we have it mixed up. When you take the sun out of the center of the solar system, what happens to all the planets? They spin out of control. The same thing is true when you take Jesus out of the center of our lives. Our lives spin out of control. But we think we're strong enough, capable enough, doggone it, people like us enough, We think we're able to control the orbit of our life. And that's where we're deceived. 
And that's why coming to Jesus, submitting to him, is actually liberating and freeing. So have you mentally understood that he is the true king? Have you taken it into your mind, into your brain, and understood that if he's the true king over all things, then I have to submit to him? Do you understand that that means submit to him in every area of your life? And do you understand that submission to him in every area of your life is not burdensome or crushing? It's liberating and free. That's the good news of the gospel that Jesus calls us to believe today. Let's pray. Man. Heavenly Father, thank you, thank you, thank you. As I, as I say that, that phrase, Heavenly Father, I'm reminded of so many places you remind us that you are a good Father who gives good gifts. You know how to give your children good gifts. What you give us is not crushing burden, but good news. Lord, I pray that we, as we end this series on the coming of Jesus in the flesh, I pray that we begin to see and understand what you came to liberate us from and set us free from. First and foremost, you came to liberate us and set us free from our our self-rule, our self-sovereignty, to, as we looked at last week, to illuminate our minds and eyes to see. Paul says that the the, the God of this world has blinded us from seeing the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You came to lift the veil, to illuminate us, to, to, to help us understand that self-rule is actually crushing. It will lead to destruction. But submission to your rule is pleasant and good that you are a compassionate and benevolent ruler, Lord. Help us understand that. Holy Spirit, may we not rush past this message, this truth this morning. May you continue to move in our hearts and our minds this week as we, as we meditate on this truth and what this means. I pray that you have taught us and that you will continue to teach us as we chew on this, these nuggets of truth, Lord, this morning. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.